Welcome to the Pessel, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Todd, Wes, and Calvin, the third host who never speaks, just silently judges everything they say. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to the Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Sunrise Bay. Catch the award-winning Moira Rose as she battles the demonic at Sunrise Bay. Welcome everybody to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a show where we pick apart films and just like hate them. I think the more that we can possibly hate movies, the happier, you know, we absolutely are. Which is obviously not true. Like we we tend to favor films that we're going to enjoy talking about we don't shy away from like if we don't like a thing even if we disagree on it like i think we take that personal because we're artists we know how hard it is to create and so we're always on the edge of trying to honor someone's work they they can push it too far they can like really just phone it in and we'll like we'll do our job as we see it i think the people who do tune in they appreciate that we're we're not going to hold any punches we're not going to necessarily enjoy tearing something apart but we're also going to be honest in our review and analysis and the things that we like and don't like we're not going to be polite necessarily just for the sake of not offending someone so to speak we're not going to say that we like a movie that isn't good but we're not going to say that we don't like a movie that is good like i think that we try to make sure that each of us has a point to say um, and can say it even if the other disagrees. And that's happened a few times. I mean, we're very similar in our tastes of film. So a lot of times we agree, but there have been several times where we just haven't agreed and that's totally fine. And that's the point of, you know, making art in general, whether that's movies, music, art itself, is that it's, you know, subjective. And what's good to me might not be good to you. And that's quite all right, because there's a a group of people who are going to like what I like and a group of people who are going to like whatever it is that you like. And that's, that's super important. That being said, we, we don't like not liking films. I think that we go into a film trying to find things to like about it. I mean, we've said it multiple times on the podcast. It's very easy for us to like your film because we, we are the easiest critics, right? If you want to call us critics, I don't, I don't like being called a critic, but I think everybody is a critic, honestly, you Mm -hmm. only because you have an opinion. A critic is just someone who voices their opinion. Obviously it's a podcast. So that's what we're doing. We want to like your film. It's up to you to convince us to not like it. I wouldn't say it's opposite of what a lot of people are like, but it's opposite of what a lot of people that I know, where you have to convince them that your film is good. It's like (laughs) totally different. It is. It really is. And we actually get a lot of requests. Uh, maybe a lot is uh, pushing, pushing the thread a little bit, but we get requests to review like these no budget indie films. It would be like something you and I made. Hey, we scrapped together 50 grand and we, we made a movie. And it's, it's always interesting the way it's presented. It's always like, hey, I'm the publicist for this new movie from upcoming writing writer, director. And if you'd like, you know, I can make them available for you to interview. And I'm like, that's cute. But at, at the same time, for one, I, I have no audience. Um, but for two, I also understand that you're looking for publicity and you're looking for anything to help give your film a chance. And so, you know, I, I'm going to respect it a little bit more if you make that obvious, like, hey, we're the little film that can not we're doing you a favor. Like, I mean, I guess they could be doing me a favor if they have an audience of like a few thousand that they're going to push our podcast to, then, you know, maybe we can talk then. But even in the, in, 
in any of those cases, like it's, I've yet to see one of those where the trailer looked good enough that I would, for one, feel good about having them on so that I could pick their brain because I, I want to put myself in a position where, you know, I can learn something from those instances, but also the trailers are always just so bad that I'm like, I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to crush you. Like, I wouldn't want to go through that as a first time director. Like I'm over here requesting someone to give me, you know, an honest feedback. And I would never go into that scenario expecting like the softballs, like, Oh, you did great. Like if you didn't like my film, I would want to have that conversation if I'm putting myself in that position to have that conversation, which I would not, I would be the least PR achiever ever. Like I, I would just hide in my hole and hit publish and go to like the Poconos or something. But I just, yeah, because of that reason, like we're going to be honest, we're going to be, you know, very consistent in our reviews, whether it's a $150 million film or a $5,000 film, we've certainly done both. And we've always been very transparent and forthright and no matter what we're covering. And so, you know, I, to that point, I think it's, if someone has just stumbled on the podca podcast and hasn't listened to anything else, any other episodes, it's important that we let everybody know that with us, it's not about budget. We've watched plenty of movies on a shoestring budget that are better than $50 million films. It is not about the budget we can see through that. It's the same thing, a musician. And when I send tracks to someone to review, I'm sending, I'm not sending finished stuff because I'm not a mixer. I'm not a master or anything like that. So I'm sending stuff that's rough, knowing that who I'm sending it to can see through the roughness and see the song for what it is. It's the same thing with a film. You, you and I notice things enough to be able to see good acting through bad cinematography or yeah. bad lighting right? Or to see a good script through bad acting. And that's the important thing. It's that it's not how much money you have. It's what you do with what you have. And so many people don't do things because like, they don't follow through or start something because they feel like they're not in the right place or they don't have to do it, or they don't have this or that, that they need to do it. And the truth is, is that 90% of the stuff that you think you need to do your project, whatever it is, whether it's a film or anything, you don't need it. You just need to do some to do it, to do something. And I promise you, when you're done, you'll think, how did I do that with the little bit that I had? That's incredible. Because I think that we as human beings are way more resourceful than we think. You know, you see these big budget films or big anything, and you think there's no way that I could do that. And the problem is, is that you're seeing the finished product of something that probably took, if it didn't take millions of dollars, it took a lot of time and effort. And the best creations make it look like it just came out, like it just happened. But I guarantee you, <laughs> I, I mean, I guarantee you it did not. I guarantee you there was a lot of, if not tears, a lot of frustration through the process of whatever it is that was being created. So absolutely. And I really love the point that, you know, that you're making that, you know, we can see through the mess and it, it's a skill like people don't realize being able to look at something rough before it's finished and to see the process and to know where they're at in the process, how good it is, not just at that point, but how good it can be once it finishes that process, like being able to see beyond, you know, if someone shows you a sketch drawing and says this is going to be a mural. You have to know that process so well that you can see the mural on this, you know, dirty sketch pad that takes practice and it takes uh, understanding and 
you know, a lot of skill that a lot of people don't have. And you and I work with, you know, paying clients all the time who say they understand, right? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll get it. This is a just a rough cut. You know, they don't understand what a rough cut means. And you explain it to them, you'll say, that means, you know, we're still going to be doing audio polishing and still is going to get go through coloring. We're still fine tuning. This is just a first pass so that you can get an idea of what it's shaping up to be. And you can get ahead of any notes, like things I want you to look for. Or are you happy with the, the general rhythm or the flow? And you, depending on the edit and what you're creating, it's all going to change. Like, how do you like these performances or how do you like, you know, just the music choices? And invariably, clients will like, get weirded out by things that you tell them, Hey, we're, we're working on this. I don't have this problem. Cause I don't use these people like pond five or whatever premium mm. beats. And you're going to tell them, you know, there's going to be a watermark. There's an audio watermark. Ignore that. We're just testing the, the music out. If you like it, we'll buy it and it'll wipe off the wa watermark. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. And then the very first thing, there's someone whispering on the track. <laughs> You're just like, yeah, no, we told you that. <laughs> Every so time. I, I use like membership subscriptions so that I never ha run into that problem. But it's that kind of thing over and over and over again. You're like, man, if you can't even get beyond that, I'm not even sure why you're looking at a rough cut. Like if you yeah. can't really see far into the future of how this process works. And so it does take practice and trust, you know, if you're a creator and you're sending it to your friends and hopefully not family because I wouldn't never invite my family into the creative process. They get to see the finish, the finished thing, but nothing before that. No. It's taken even me a while. Like I used to just wait until I was 95% of the way there before I let people start seeing my, my cuts. Now I'm at the point where I don't mind someone looking at it more often than not. I'll watch it with someone in the room just so that I can watch it through their eyes and I won't even ask them for feedback. Now I'm watching it with renewed eyes because someone else is watching it. I'm critiquing my video in a whole new way. Interesting. And after that point, I can just tell them, okay, thanks, go away. And I have five new things that, I'm, that I want to edit because just having this standing away. there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a process, man. Perfect. I, I mean, I love what we do. It's, it's, it's always, you know, just an adventure every project no matter what absolutely man so what are we doing today today we are uh reviewing notting hill when did it come out 1999 99 yeah yeah notting hill so if you haven't watched notting hill please pause this episode and go watch it there's going to be spoilers all over the place for sure we're going to talk about so many things we'll touch on cinematography how you can see that this is a drama not a comedy and we'll also look at some of the acting. I specifically saw some stuff Julia Roberts was doing in her performance. Definitely talk about some of the writing and story, the genius of exposition as a game. We'll talk about the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, if I'm pronouncing that properly even. We'll talk about some of the music and how they nearly ruined the effing ending of the movie and why I wish I could edit this movie and other such stuff and things and stuff. A synopsis of the film. The life of a simple bookshop owner changes when he meets a famous movie star. Directed by Roger Mitchell. Is that right? Is there supposed to be a T in there? There's not supposed to be a T. I don't know if it's Sorry. Mitchell or Michelle. You can destroy it either way. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Directed by Roger Michelle. Written by Richard Curtis. Cinematography by Michael Coulter. Starring Julia Roberts as Anna Scott. Hugh Grant as William Thacker. Reese Ifans as Spike, Tim McInerney as Max, uh, Gina McKee as Bella, 
Emma Chambers as Honey, Hugh Bonneville as Bernie, and James Dreyfus as Martin. Can I just say no to your kind request? Leave it at that. Yes. Fine. Of course, I... Of course. Well, I'll just be going um, then. It was nice to see you. The thing is, with you, I'm in real danger. It seems like a perfect situation, apart from that foul temper of yours. But my relatively inexperienced heart would, I fear, not recover uh, if I was once again cast aside, as I would absolutely expect to be. Uh, there are just too many pictures of you, too many films. <laughs> you know, you'd go and I'd be uh, well buggered, basically. That really is real now, isn't it? I live in Notting Hill, you live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. My mother has trouble remembering my name. Fine, good decision. Good decision. The fame thing isn't really real, you know. And don't forget, I'm also just a girl. Standing in front of a boy. Asking him to love her. Does this movie work for you? I don't know how big you are on like, you know, kind of romance dramas, even lighthearted ones like this one. And so I'm, I have no idea if this is up your alley or not. Yeah. You know, I kind of want to get your take on it, honestly, before I give you all of mine, okay. because I'm torn by this film. I remember enjoying it and then watching it again. It was interesting. It was like, I, I mean, I don't think it doesn't hold up. Mm -hmm. I think as a movie, it is what it is, whether it was 1999 or 2021, it kind of doesn't date itself necessarily, except for the fact that she doesn't have a cell phone to call someone. And so she has to go to his house. And that is a little weird. There are some weird things in it. It's not like a time capsule of 1999 necessarily. Because of that, it's a little interesting in how my view of it has changed over the last 22 years or so. I'm going to defer until I hear your thoughts and then I want to tell you what I initially thought and if it changed at all. Nice. If so, that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's fun. So for me, like I love it. I have, you know, minor issues here and there, but they largely don't get in the way of all the things that I love about this movie. I didn't see this for the, you know, when it came out, it was several years after the fact. And I remember watching it and I was like, why doesn't anybody talk about this movie. This is like fantastic. No one had ever recommended it to me or I'd never even really heard anybody talk about it. I'm not like a Julia Roberts fan per se, or a Hugh Grant fan either. Like I didn't grow up watching their movies. I didn't, I think the only Julia Roberts movie I, I saw before this was probably the Pelican brief. And that was just because it had Denzel in it. Like I, I you know, I, I grew up on him more than her for sure. I didn't watch Pretty Woman. I knew that was a thing and like my sister loved it. And Hugh Grant, same thing. I still really haven't watched Four Weddings and a Funeral. Like sitting down and watching this, it wasn't like 
I felt connected to either of these actors or at all. And so I think for me, it was very easy to lose myself into the story because they, you know, they're both stars and they have to work for that whole aspect of, you know, she's a star. And that's always a, a very tenuous relationship with the viewer is to have actual celebrities playing celebrities and one other celebrity pretending to not be you have to work through things for you know for that to work you know one of the worst genres is the old musician rising to stardom like that's a really difficult genre and this is dancing around in that same territory with the exception you know she's already famous which in a lot of ways is even worse that whole idea is even worse and so this thing had a lot for me first time walking into this going against it but as soon as uh, I kind of slip into it, it it felt really good in terms of I don't see a lot of this type of movie where you see like the guy just constantly kicked around. And I identify a lot with that. I'm like, you know, he says there at the beginning, I'm not a, I'm an even keeled bloke, you know, not often given to being in and out of love. And I love seeing him, William Thacker, just kind of struggling with love and romance and getting it his heart kicked in the ass, you know, constantly <laughs> and finding the resilience to, you know, give it another go and trying again. And I love that aspect of this movie. And I love how authentic I feel Hugh Grant's performance is and how easy it is to connect with William. And for me, it's a pretty effortless two hours. And I, I enjoy all the side characters. Like I love Spike. And it's funny because a lot of the naming conventions are terrible. Like the name Spike as a name is a terrible name for a character. It's so on the nose. Anna Scott is a very forgettable name. William Thacker is a very, for, I forget their names frequently. And I've seen that. I probably watch this movie once or twice a year. And I promise if you were to ask me what their names are, if I didn't have it sitting in front of me, I would struggle for it. Like I don't remember their names. What I remember is their relationships and how they make me feel about life and possibility. And I guess the the hope because they both are having their own struggles or both having their own you know difficulties with love. I really appreciated the presentation that she has to go through and the way we have to understand her perspective of being a, a celebrity going through heartbreaks in the media and how she has to you know, pretend to still be dating someone that she's not even dating anymore. And so there's all these little wrinkles that are in there that really ground it and make you connect with someone, even though we don't spend a lot of time in her world per se. I mean, we spend, you know, a decent amount, but it's always through the lens of William Thacker. It's never just us experiencing Anna Scott's life. It's always experiencing her life through the vantage point of Williams. And that gives it a lot of grounding and and even whenever, you know, as a filmmakers, we're watching like he's walking through this, you know, period piece and all these kids are playing in the background. This horse carriage is going by as, as they're theoretically resetting for a new take. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, no, that's that's got to be a weird balancing act to make it look like this is a lively set without making it feel on the nose <laughs> and overly directed like that's a got to be a, a mind f for a director to be going through like yeah we need to make it look glamorous without making it feel put upon <laughs> like it's it's kind of hilarious there's a lot about this movie that i really find endearing and a lot to enjoy i just really like the the uh, the melancholic tone of it it takes itself fairly seriously without getting overly serious with it like they're writing such a fun line to me of somber without ever letting the character get 
too moody and they usually let you know spike and max kind of kick him around for that like at the end right where he's telling everybody i turned down anna scott and spike turns up and he's like hey i got the call i'm here what's happening and they tell him like yeah well william just turned down anna scott and he just looks at him daft prick <laughs> and that's it that's the only thing he says for that entire scene is daft prick and at the end of that sequence as you know william is recounting the the moment where he's like yeah and she told me you know she's also just a just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her <laughs> everyone's face gets so long and and he looks at spike he's like i've i've made the wrong mistake uh, uh, decision haven't i and he just like what did I say? Daft prick. <laughs> and it's just this really beautiful scene and sequence and which gets into the sequence that I hate. But there's yeah, there's just for me, there's a lot for me to, I guess, connect with and I don't know, go through the, the whole journey of William being kind of a an idiot. Like generally you just see him as this really endearing, lovable moron, which Hugh Grant is, I don't know, maybe he's pulling from too much life experience, but he just pulls it off with grace and aplomb. Like it's, uh, it's so good. Yeah. I love it. I think a little bit has changed, but not fully. Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts are great. They're really great actors in this film. Julia Roberts is amazing. I mean, she just plays herself, like whatever, you know, Hugh Grant has the, like, I think in every movie, he's very similar. He's just this, you know, impossible to get angry, very patient and kind. And like, you, you just like the guy, right? So he plays that character really well. I think that this more than a lot of other of his roles, he does it better here because he needs to be that way. If he were to get angry at her, then we wouldn't necessarily get angry with her. Like part of why we get angry at her for treating him the way that she does is because he never does. Mm. It gives us the okay, basically, to say, okay, we're we're gonna get mad at her for him. So that was that's really cool. That's a way that they're drawing that line in the sand between like, is this super depressing, like dark, or is it kind of more fun? Well, if he's never up like visually upset about it, you know, other than, you know, moping around a little bit or whatever, he never gets like angry, you know, we can go there internally, but the movie never has to. So that's really cool. I like that. The scene at the end that you played is beautiful. And her performance in that is so delicate. And she's so quiet in her lines. She's so quiet in her lines that I just, I, you just listen and it just pulls you in, right? Fantastic. Fantastic. That line, just a girl standing in front of a boy asking, yeah, that is a dated thing for me. I think it's a beautiful line if it had never been said before and it was just said now, Uh but because I've heard it for 20 years, I'm like, oh, there's that. I call it a cliche line, but it's the only time it's ever been said. Right. I think it's just because it's it's so well known now. I, I think, I don't know, but it's still a beautiful line nonetheless. And there's a lot of comedic interruption in this, in that scene where she comes to to see him, his assistant, he has to leave the room to talk to his mother <laughs> in the middle of her professing her love. And so this, it's this is awkward moment where this guy is try, <laughs> trying to have this conversation with one of the most famous people on the planet and is failing miserably. <laughs> so we get a little bit of break of a little bit of tension that, mm-hmm. that arose, but then there's way more tension after because he turns her down. I love Spike. 
yes, I hate the name, but I do love Spike. I thought he was great. Everything he did was just fantastic. One of the things that I thought was really cool about him was just his complete aloofness to anything that affected Will, (laughs) right? So first off, him forgetting to tell him that Anna called him (laughs) until days later, and then later on, not helping him find his glasses, and he just happened to be sitting on him. Because he just completely does not give two shits (laughs) about helping anything that doesn't have anything to do with him. And I think that that's hilarious. I like all the characters, all of his family. They're just great. They make you want to sit at that table and talk to them and laugh. The scene at the table where she's sitting there and they're all telling, saying why they're the saddest sack so they can have the the brownie. Mm. You can all, you can totally see, okay, Anna's going to be last and she's going to tell some story or whatever. And she's going to win the brownie, right? I love that she doesn't win the brownie, that they call her out on the bullshit of... Uh, oh, your life is so terrible. So you've been on a diet for 10 years. I So what? A lot of people have been on a diet for, for 10 years and they're not famous, right? And they call, they, they're they like, oh man, that's that's that. Nope, sorry about it. We don't believe you. You're an actress. I love that because to me, I was watching that. I was like, yeah, I can feel that she's sad. It's hard for her, mm-hmm. but I still call bullshit on it, right? And I would call bullshit on 99% of, you know, like rich, famous people. Whether it was true or not, it doesn't matter. They call it out so that we can either choose to call it out to, to identify with them calling it out or choose to stay with her in that. We They just kind of give us the choice, I guess. The I forget her name, but the the character in the wheelchair. Oh, Bella. She had, yeah, she had just said that they can't have kids. Yeah. And she's in a wheelchair. I don't want to hear, like, I'm sorry, Anna. You're not, no, you don't win. I loved that scene. I love the way they wrote that scene because that so could have easily gone stay permanently on Anna as the sad sack of the group and she gets the brownie and then something breaks tension and is funny after that. But no, the funny thing is that they call it out. I loved that. I loved that. My issues with it were... And this might throw you for a loop a little bit. I don't know. You usually find really strange issues with films whenever you find like issues yeah yeah i mean i don't think this is a strange issue it just might be an issue that might be not divisive but just like something where you totally disagree i'm a big elvis elvis costello fan i am i don't like this song Mm. in this movie i hate it it sets the movie up completely on the wrong tone because it's opening with that whole song essentially and all we see is her I'm expecting something that I don't get. I don't know why. I just don't like it. I don't like it. And then the whole, when you say nothing at all, I hate that. I just, it's so dated. I remember exactly where, how old I was and where I was when that song was out and I was dancing with girls like awkwardly in gyms, right? And so that dates the movie for me. I mean, the Bill Withers track, Ain't No Sunshine is perfect, but that's perfect for any film. Yeah. I mean, that that's one of the greatest songs of all time in my mind. I love that. But those two songs in particular were very important moments. Well, the beginning and the end, obviously, for she. But then When You Say Nothing was basically the not the first time they kissed, but the first real mm-hmm. kiss where he actually ki- kisses her back in the when they jump the fence. Right. And I remember like that song came on. I'm like, what? And it's not even the it's not even the super famous version. That's that's right. like the Ronan yeah. Keating version, which was redone by I forget who some some country artist. And uh-huh. Like that's John Michael Montgomery. I want to say yes. Look at you. Look at you. Know I grew up country. country. I know my country. There you go. 
<laughs> I wasn't a fan of the of the music selections. I noticed them. That was the other thing. Is that it's kind of hard to describe. No, I think I think what I what I hear you saying is like it, the music was drawing attention to itself instead of drawing you into the movie. Yes. Yeah. I mean, not so much for she. I wasn't torn away from the movie when that mm. was playing because there wasn't anything happening. We were right. just there. She is yeah. okay. Anyway, wasn't a big fan of that. And then that whole ending, man, it just lost me. Basically, from after that scene where she throws her, where she asks him for forgiveness and to be with her until through through pretty much you know the whole car chase all the way to the end almost actually when i got brought back in was when they're together and she was playing again the the song she is playing again and they're walking down the red carpet and stuff and mm. and you know they're just living together i was brought back into it then despite the not liking the track selection actually i would have liked that track selection had it not, i not heard it earlier mm. in the movie if that was the only time that i heard it that would have felt better to me, which is weird because I love the idea of circling around and revisiting things and, you know, oh, we hear it at the beginning of the film and we hear it at the end. Well, she's not the same person as she was in the beginning. Yeah. He's not the same person. So mm -hmm. why are we hearing the same track? It uh, just, yeah, it would have been wonderful to hear it either in the beginning or in the end, Hope rather it being at the end. But that whole section where he turns her down, which is just, he doesn't do it well. Right. Because he's not able to his character is not able to get angry. It's just this half ass kind of no, but I love you. And I don't know. That's just it doesn't do it for me. And then we know exactly what's going to happen. We know he's going to chase her down. We know he's going to find her. They're going to have to end up together. So I would have liked there to have been more creative way for that to happen. But all in all, I didn't I, like you said, it is a pretty quick two hours i did enjoy it you know my wife even watched it with me which which she doesn't watch a whole lot of films with me so it was really enjoyable i think a couple of things like i said i'm in a different place in my life where something a movie like this doesn't hit me like it did even though other movies like that we've recently done that are similar in a regard have hit me this has didn't hit me the way that it did before hmm. i think i just didn't identify with Hugh Grant's sadness hmm. with being either hurt or turned down. I don't fully know why. If I have to guess, it would be because for the same reason that he doesn't get angry at her, he, his character doesn't get angry at her. I don't see the sadness hmm. and I don't fully see the, ha the, the happiness either. Even at the end when they're smiling, I just don't, he's just right in the middle, which is fine. It's fine because I think you can put yourself into his shoes. You can be his character. You can say, okay, I'm going to be that guy because he's not too angry. He's not too sad. He's not too this or that or whatever. So I'm very lukewarm. But because of that, I don't, I don't feel like the, just the straight up sadness from him sad enough to turn her down later. Mm. So it was, it was fun. It was enjoyable. Not something that I'm like super crazy about. Fun to analyze, honestly. I think, yeah, you know what? I mean, those are very reasonable like issues to to bring up and even to to hang on this this film. Like, as far as like him not getting too high or you know too low necessarily, like those are those are the kind of that's the kind of thing that draws me in because I'm that kind of person. I'm not someone who's going to yell 
at someone, no matter how bad they hurt me. Like I'm also someone who's pretty forgiving, but I, I do have my, my tipping points. And so from a, a tonal, you know, frame of mind, I really appreciate this movie that it never gets melodramatic. And the only real yelling that happens is from her at, you know, one of the worst moments of her life. That's, you know, just catching her by surprise. You know, that's when she snaps at him, right? And the, after the press shows up and after she's had like old nude photographs like published all over, like that's the only time she snaps. And every other time, you know, she hurts him inadvertently or not. You can tell she's not, you know, she's not happy about it. She feels terrible, but at the same time, she's still living that life. Yeah, I appreciate that it never goes, you know, melodramatic one way or the other. It, it stays pretty even and the lowest, it has two kind of low points. Uh, the Bill Withers song, um, you know, Ain't No Sunshine is just fantastic. That, that whole shot is sequence, amazing. God, the right into the snow and then, the, you know, the whole season's changing. God, that's just that's fantastic. Like, that's a really great sequence. And they put a lot of effort into that. Yeah, for sure. And then the other one is right after the first time she gets the boot. I love Alec Baldwin's little cameo because you need an actor that can pop in and immediately sell celebrity and asshole that you don't like at the same time. And that's Alec. Like, yeah. <laughs> Who you got in your Rolodex? There's only one man. <laughs> We're going to get <laughs> Alec Baldwin in here. And he crushes it. Like he, he's great. I love, you know, his performance there. And it's perfect because the last thing you want is for someone to show up that you actually like better than him. Um, yeah. And, and so that's, that's perfect. But I agree. I mean, I've never fallen in love with the, most of the music in this in this film unlike you i'm not an elvis costello fan i would not have even known that that was one of his songs like i had no idea and so it's never pulled me in i think it does work really well at the end much better than at the beginning it's a weird tone to start with and i think it's tonally in line with the film but it it to your point, it doesn't necessarily set you up in a way that makes a lot of sense. It's the connective tissue isn't a hundred percent there. Like it's the right tone in terms of emotion, not necessarily the right track. And there's some other issues with that. you know, as far as music goes without saying a word, whatever that song is called, that one works for me for the most part. I think it, you know, if they found a better track, I'm sure there's a lot out there, but I can see the argument against it. And if I was directing this piece and you were looked at me and you said, man, I don't think that's the right track for that. Gone. Like I have no problem right, ejecting yeah. that out. I'm like, okay, no, you're, you're probably right. <laughs> um, it would not have been my pick. Uh, but at the same time as someone, I guess, who's looking for reasons to like the movie, the, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Like it doesn't really pull sure. me out, but it does pull attention to itself and, in a way that I don't necessarily think helps the movie either because of the very reason that you mentioned, like John Michael Montgomery kind of made this song famous. And now you're using like what sounds, I had no idea who wrote it or made it first or whatever. But every time I hear the song, I think about his version. And so for that reason alone, it's probably not, not the right pick. Distracting the audience from your story is never the right pick. And so the car chase sequence is the worst sequence I effing hate it so much <laughs> it totally betrays the tone of the entire film you just spent you know an hour and 45 minutes hour and 50 minutes building this very you know grounded melancholy tone and then suddenly we're turning on 
I don't know who that is. Uh, it's um, it's an incredibly famous song that's been used in precisely 300 billion other movies. And so why don't we want to use that song? That's just a stupid in every way. That was the wrong choice because the problem that they that they ran into in the in the writing phase is we've spent an hour and fifty minutes kind of making Anna Scott not exactly the villain but the problem. She's been the problem through an hour and 50 minutes. The last thing any movie wants, and this gets into whether, I don't know what you want to call it, but traditional norms of the man has to seek the woman. Movies never end with the woman seeking out the man. And if you've set up a movie for, you know, an hour and 50 minutes where the man has been constantly rejected (laughs) and the woman has been the problem and she's the issue, now you have to turn it on its ear so that, he becomes the pursuer in a way that you see success being a possibility. And so now he has to finally fight for her in a way that, you know, builds excitement and expectation and catharsis. And so for that to work, he needs to reject her at long last and then kind of undo it. And at that point, you want some energy, you want some excitement for the big finale, the big finish, so to speak. And I mean, I personally hate it. If I think if I was going to edit it, I'll give it a shot where I kind of just make it at the Ritz where he just shows up and now he just sneaks in. And I still kind of like that that whole idea of it, it has to play out in the press because the press has played a large role throughout the film of pushing them together, you know, and pulling them apart. And so the idea that she has to do what she's been unwilling to do throughout the film, which is kind of confess or acknowledge her romance with him. She has to pull him into the spotlight to make him her equal. I think that all makes sense. There's a lot of connective tissue that works for that scene, but the setup through that chase sequence is such a betrayal of the rest of the film that it pisses me off every single time. And again, I watch this movie one to two times a year and I just roll my eyes through that whole sequence. I hate it so much. If I wanted to try to keep that whole chase energy, I would either find a new song or maybe just try it without any music, do these kind of hard cuts of him going to the hotel and playing through that. Cause there's some nice levity that, that comes in there, right? The whole kissing him on the cheek. And you know, you have this uh, Japanese businessman who's just kind of picking up on the norms. Like, you know, that's some maybe dated ideas of comedy, but it's cute. You know, it's quick. It's funny. It's for, you know, pretty painless. That kills me as far as music for the rest of the film. I like that they use a lot of music to transition, not just between scenes, but also within the scene itself. They'll transition as a time lapse by using music. They'll use what's called a J-cut where you kind of hear the music enter before the the scene ends. And that kind of allows you this mental seamless transition to, oh, we're cutting to three hours later within the same restaurant or, you know, at the dinner party. We're going to transition into this montage of them talking, having fun before we're getting to you know, the brownie scene or whatever. And so there's a lot of really great uses of music throughout the film, but it's weird that they had such a bad job of actually picking the music for, you know, 75% of the film. And to your point, there's never a wrong time to use Ain't No Sunshine. Like, don't care. Throw it in there. That shit's going to sing. You know, what I really enjoyed was when, I guess, what was it, Max? Yeah, the the driver. Would not leave Bella. Uh, Yeah. That, like where, where where's Bella? Where's Bella? She's not coming. Oh, 
bollocks. <laughs> and he goes out and he freaking picks her up. I looked at my wife and I like, and then he carry her upstairs. I said, I'll carry you. She's like, you better, you better get stronger back. <laughs> As, yeah. I identified and like had emotional feelings for Max and Bella yeah. in those moments when he would look at her, you know, when she said they couldn't have kids, he looked at her with so much love and heartbreak at the same time. And then when he picked her up to take her upstairs, when he picked her up to put her in the car, like he was not going to leave her. Like, it's just like that to me was, that's a story. Like, that's a story that I want to see, you know, like they did a great job of that. I felt like full watching them. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. Like that sequence allows for that kind of moment throughout the film. There are so many conversations about love that's, that's happening. You know, it's obviously their conversation. It's his sister, honey, and all her heartbreaks. And but there's also other kinds of love that they touch on, too. Right. You have this side character, Tony, who started his restaurant. He loved cooking. He loved his restaurant being a chef and it failed. And, that, and in that same conversation, as they're closing it down, they're having this final dinner. You know, Bella's having that that moment where she says, the more and more I look at life, I realize there's no rhyme or reason to the things that happen. And then Bernie, <laughs> he was just, he's kind of a hilarious character. He's a stockbroker who's terrible at his job, but it's, I loved his story. And it's about kind of a conversation about love too, because he didn't love his work as a stockbroker, but that still failed too. He was, and it kind of underscores her point. Like there's no rhyme or reason to the things that happen. You can love what you do and fail. You can hate what you do and still fail. Don't assign more reason to things that happen in life than great than point. Wow. So good. Wow. Yeah. All throughout the film. The cinematography, so I've always kind of wrestled with the idea, because to me, this isn't a rom-com, and I don't generally like rom-coms, but I was having a hard time always kind of defending whether or not this was a romantic comedy or not, and watching it this time and actually sitting and taking notes, like I was like, yeah, you know what? This is not a comedy. I feel very, very good about that now, and I think a lot of the cinematography points to the idea that this is a drama, that this is a romance. I mean... For one, just the the anamorphic, the widescreen aspect of it, not typically something you get out of a comedy. And there's a lot of close-ups, and it really lets us into people's inner worlds. Again, not something that's 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 something that's far more typical of a drama, pulling you into someone's world through the use of you know very tight close-ups. And there's also a lot of complex camera moves. Like there's a ton of crane shots. There's even a handheld shot that transitions into a crane shot. Like when we meet William walking down Notting Hill, like that's a handheld. You oh, can yeah. see all the bumps and then it immediately transitions into this very tall crane shot so that you can see his blue door. And there's a lot of these long dolly moves. Even within the scenes, there's all these multiple setups to cover a scene that to a degree that you, I would say you don't normally see in comedies. Not that comedies don't do normal coverage and they go through... And, you know, find an important shot. But this movie had a much more tender connection with the emotion of scenes than most comedies usually have. And the lighting, the lighting was far more subtle. Instead of this bright and loud lighting, you know, and these colors, you have this much more subdued kind of grounded, you know, for lack of a, a better word, lighting that felt far more motivated instead of let's just make it very, very bright so that it feels friendly and prone to laughter. 
maybe most importantly, and this is not cinematography related, but the humor isn't obvious or hard hitting. Like there's no real laugh lines in this movie. All the humor is grounded within the relationships between the characters with each other instead of aimed at the audience. None of the jokes outside of that effing chase sequence are really aimed at the audience. If you remove that sequence, I would say there's no jokes that are aimed at the audience. It's always just this kind of silly, like the whole oopsie daisy. Like that's not really that funny. That's not a, that's not a laugh line. Instead, it's a line for, you know, the characters to grow closer. And I personally really love that kind of humor that feels natural and endemic to the characters more than they're trying to make me laugh. And that feels much more honest and true to dramas than it does to comedies. None of this was really aimed at making you laugh. It was aimed at making you care about, you know, the people on the screen. And it's also a very blue film. This is getting back, to, I guess, to cinematography because color to me is, even though it's wardrobe and set dressing, it's still conversations that usually going to involve the cinematographer. And so there's a, it's a very blue film. It's a ton of blue. If you just watch this film thinking about blue, you'll see it everywhere. Like the blue door, obviously, you know, even the, the character that walks out of the, the hair salon is wearing like this blue hair. It's just everywhere. And of course, blue is, you know, a very simple connection with sad and longing and loneliness. And it's the very heartbeat of the film is melancholy. And no matter which frame of thought you look at this movie through it's going to play to that whether you're talking about performance lighting color every aspect of it is just you know screaming you know drama lightly romance because even even the romance part of it is is very subdued like he's wearing pink he's not wearing a red shirt her hair isn't like you know this very bright red his sister's hair is bright as it gets like she is the loudest character in the film and she's just only periodically in there and that's my argument for why this not that anybody was going to pick this fight but that's my argument for why it's not a comedy <laughs> i just started a fight no one I, picked yeah yeah i can just i can just see it down in the comments on youtube this is going to be like the most viewed most commented video we have no Wes, it is a <laughs> no way it's a rom-com man <laughs> And so acting wise, I think you said it really well, Joey Roberts, man, that scene, you know, the, I, such a good point, you know, the, the, the not quite whispering, but the quietness that she brings is just an absolute punch, but she does a lot throughout the film. Like her smiling throughout the film is so perfect because even during, you know, the hurts or the awkward moments, she smiles through them. It serves a lot of purposes. For one, it's very human, right? Smiling, showing our teeth can be a defense mechanism. That's to provide cover for how we really feel given a moment. But for her, it's the perfect defense mechanism because she's a famous actress. So it's right in line with that kind of character who is used to dealing with awkward moments and having to hide how she really feels about a situation and you do that through your her, your smiling you know that's a very celeb thing to kind of use to harness that's her weapon her smile is her weapon to get get around and to get things that she wants and to provide you know some kind of defense for herself and so she uses it very perfectly it's just a really smart intellectual i think approach to to this movie i also really love when she's upset especially at that last scene that scene and another scene, she holds her breath when she's upset. Like if you watch her, she's really just holding her breath in. And it's it's perfect because that's what we do when we're upset. We stop breathing. We don't take full breaths. We take these shallow breaths if we breathe at all. We'll hold our breath and you'll catch yourself when you're really upset. 
she uses it to perfection. Like after the tabloids publish her, her photos and she rushes into William's apartment. If you watch her in that scene, she's holding her breath. And when, when we're stressed, when we do that, we stop breathing, it speeds your heart rate up. It causes flushing and panting and it triggers even tears, right? It's a physical trigger that if you need to feel these things, like for a performance, you could do it within yourself, start breathing shallow. And you almost don't even have to go into this mental place of, of pain in order to, to conjure up, you know, some of these things. It's an, it's a very physical response that I learned from one of my acting coaches, uh, Trent Moore, on how to trigger some of these uh, emotions physically first before you even have to go there mentally. And she's just doing an absolute clinic because I can't imagine a hard performance of, hey, hey, famous person, play a famous person. <laughs> like, oh, like, uh, yeah, no, yeah. you know, I, no, thanks. <laughs> I'll take another role. <laughs> <laughs> Moving into, I guess, uh, the writing and story. Making a celebrity is a, is, is a tricky thing. The whole opening sequence, of course, is just Anna Scott on set in red carpets, you know, et cetera. They're trying to build that world right away. But honestly, as soon as that sequence is over, I forget it. They're going to have to do so much more work. I instantly forget as soon as we see William and we're in the movie now, that felt like some other thing like that I didn't witness. And so we have to see everything else support that moment which helps we see William's reaction to her entering the shop right the world kind of stops and I love her her outfits are kind of hilarious in, in some ways especially the first time we we meet her right she's in leather and sunglasses and they're making her fabulous and I'm like yeah that's that's a little on the nose um but at the same time that's kind of the stuff you see in like us weekly or as you see celebs dressed like that. I'm like, all right, you know, it works. Y'all going to have to do better though. <laughs> but the reactions of the people around her, right. She turns people into giddy idiots, his family and friends, his roommate spike, even like that Rufus that weirdo shoplifter wants her autograph. <laughs> <laughs> like the reactions so of everyone she interacts with is help selling who she is. Um, and even at that birthday dinner, I love her outfit there, you know, her hair is up in this sophisticated braid and she has this very chic, casual look that contrasts very neatly with everyone else without screaming high fashion. She blends in yet stands apart. Like it's just a really great job from the wardrobing department. And then we also get to see her like in a PR tour surrounded by agents, managers, journalists, and they build a wall around her so that even calling her is very difficult without going through security right? She gives herself pseudonyms for privacy, Flintstones and Bambi or whatever. And so they, they have to work triple and quadruple over time to really help you see through William's eyes that she is absolutely a celebrity that he has to work for and that he, I don't want to say fetishizes, but, you know, glamorizes and, and looks at in as a part of another world that he isn't a part of because the whole plot of the film rests on that, especially that, that final moment in the bookstore, which, works well for me i i don't care how many times i've seen it or seen people you know kind of make fun of it or you know just lightly reference it for for humor's sake it always works for me it always gets me like because of her and how good she is and it's really good writing met with incredible performance like i think you could put that line with another actor and it still works pretty good but it takes a, exactly what you said, a delicate hand. She is just so delicate with the, using using that, that dialogue. And they put her in blue. That's right. All blue. Yep. And, and a blue gradient. She's, 
I don't notice anything that she's wearing, honestly, until then. Yeah. And I noted like she stands out like a so because she's surrounded by brown. Yeah. You know, the bookshelves are around her and there's white behind her because we're looking through glass. And she just jumps out of the screen. She's so beautiful. She's more beautiful in that scene than any other time in the in the rest of the film. It's just unbelievable. Great job for the from the wardrobe department. Because also we're screaming at William, what the hell are you doing? You know? When he's turning her down. Because now finally it's on her. Throughout the, the rest of the film, he's in blue. And it's at that final sequence where she's finally the one who's heartbroken and looking for to be made whole and complete. He, and he's in that pink shirt. Like it's, the, they're telling a story through the color here. And if you watch the movie with that lens on, you'll you'll find a lot of fun stuff like that. Yeah, exposition as a game. Ah, oh, this is one of my favorite things in this movie. And it's that scene that you were talking about earlier. We'll give the the brownie, the last brownie to the saddest act here. And we literally go around the table and hear everyone's backstory. Exposition is hard, man. It's so hard to do in a way that feels natural to the environment. You want to get to know these characters, who they are, you know, where they've been without making the audience feel like they're you're reading cue cards to them and they did it in the smartest way for one exposition is usually told through a new character you invite someone new to the story and give a reason for people to talk about well yeah that's jimmy from the block and he's the one who you want to get your drugs from or whatever like they constantly use new characters as a method of like introducing backstory of other characters this is one of the only times and the smartest way I feel like I've, I've seen it done because they literally create a game out of it. They're going to gamify exposition. And now the, the goal is to present the worst part of your backstory as a method of earning brownie points, quite literally. Like it's genius. Um, and it just completely works because you hear everyone's backstory and empathize with everybody and laugh at people because to your point, like, there is not going to be a sadder story than someone who is now in a wheelchair who can't have kids. They introduce that one early on so that then they can use William as a as a punching bag. Like, well, we'll let her off the hook because you don't want to. No one wants pity like she she realizes and she doesn't want pity. But at the same time, she also wants to be honest about what her what her story is. She doesn't she want wants the brownie. She wants the brownie and she wants to say what everyone else would have been thinking anyway. What good is it? To pretend like, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't get a raise last week. Who gives a shit? You, you know, you just got put in a wheelchair wheelchair like a year and a half ago. Don't tell me that's not, you know, the hardest thing you're dealing with right now. Like, yeah. great. I think you're a strong person. You're going to get better. But right now in this moment in life, like that's significant. And to not acknowledge that would have been worse than to uh, to let it play out. And then thankfully to use William to be like. Yeah, what about William? You know, he just got divorced. He has a failing bookshop and he's roommates with like this dude who doesn't like to wear clothes. <laughs> like he's, yeah. he's got it the worst. And, <clears throat> and oh yeah, and you know, he had the best nickname, Floppy. And so they just kind of get to bag on him. And then they use Anna Scott's story to finally kind of normalize her. We get to hear her backstory and humanize her from her quote unquote perfect life. And we get to hear some of the hardships and sacrifices like abusive relationships suck. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a billionaire. Being in an abusive relationship is not okay. It's not good. It's not okay. Like, And so to kind of hear that and to hear the surgeries that she's been through, it's like, whoa, shit, you know. But then again, 
I love that they kind of punch at her for it. Like, eh, whatever, you're a millionaire, you know, and, and William is even the one that kind of gives her some shit about it, right? He's like, that's a terrible yeah. attempt to take my brownie from me. Like, <laughs> he just grabs it and starts snacking on it. He's like, terrible, pathetic. It's great. It's endearing. It, it humanizes her. Because if she wins that moment, to your point earlier, now she literally has everything. She's famous. She's rich. She's gorgeous. And she, you know, is uh, has a brownie. Ha- has the hardest case on at the table. Nah, yeah. not gonna happen. You can't win that battle. And that's a way to your point earlier about like how it, it's not as it's not like such a sad movie. Yeah. They do a really great job. I noticed multiple times in the film of everybody pokes fun at everybody else, and nobody takes it personally. Yeah, like they poke fun at William constantly and William totally takes it and he'll dish it out to Max and Bella. We find out that he was in love with Bella and Bella married Max. Oh, and she says, Oh, I was never physically interested in you, (laughs) you know, like, and he just takes it like, Oh yeah, yeah, I get it. But, and that happens throughout the whole time when they're, when they're eating at the restaurant the last night before it's going to close. Unfortunately, no one came to your restaurant because it sucked yeah. you know, or whatever it is that they said, you know, like they would just say it. And he's like, yeah, you know, and they just take it like nobody takes anything personally because they know that they love each other. And so I think that's part of why we never get it's not this somber movie. Right. It's mm-hmm. it's just always lighthearted and, and lifted, even even though everybody is sad and there's sad shit all over the place in it. And and there's blue and sadness everywhere, but we don't really feel it. It's like this way of it almost it's almost like it tries to it's trying to teach you that there's a way to go through life with sadness, even mm. if it's an underlying current there, there's a way to ride the wave right up and down. I think we all have this bed of sadness that's just always there. And sometimes it's more of a flood and sometimes it's more of just like a waiting or like a puddle. But if that's the case, then man, you know. I want to watch it again with that in mind, because that's a beautiful, beautiful message. It took me until right now to kind of like realize that might be an underlying current. Now I want to watch it again with that in mind. That, that is a beautiful sentiment. Like, I, I think it is in there. Maybe not a level 10. Yeah. Because it is kind of underlying the the, the story. But yeah, nicely yeah. done. Man. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, there. that was Your great. Exposition is a game. Yeah, exposition is a game. I think the last point I was going to make about that specifically was we're 30 minutes into the film before we meet his family and friends. So this is a great shortcut to allow us to spend the first 30 minutes getting to know William and Anna before bringing in a whole new set of characters. And so that just gives us a very quick way to to not just bring us up to speed on who they are, but to really feel like we know them and look forward to seeing them again and throughout the rest of the film. So just genius writing in my opinion like i always think about this whenever i think about exposition one of the last things i have is it's got to be anna there's from a writing standpoint after his first heartbreak we see him right go on these comedically bad dates we see him meet someone absolutely lovely too and that's a really fun like little journey because it's a little too easy to just kind of keep putting bad dates in front of him and be like, yeah, of course he wants Anna. But to see him actually meet someone absolutely perfect. And I think in, in the credits, they even call her perfect girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> but she's beautiful and she's, you know, funny and uh, charming and sweet and absolutely perfect. Unlike Anna, who has all these imperfections <laughs> like this girl is really, really nice. And it's played by Emily Mortimer, by the way, who's 
went on to be a really fantastic actress and does a lot of great films. She was in Newsroom. She played, you know, the lead opposite Jeff Daniels. She's fantastic. And the problem is she's just not Anna. She's just not what I want. And that's okay. It's it's okay to want what you want. But the the beauty of that whole sequence is it also plays into the uh the Bader Botter Meinhof phenomenon, which is the official name for what's more commonly known as frequency illusion. It's a cognitive bias in which after noticing something for the first time, there is a tendency to notice it more often, leading someone to believe that it is a high frequency, a form of selection bias, like whenever you buy a new car and then suddenly you you see that car all over the road. And it's like, man, internally, suddenly looking for it more often and therefore you notice it more often. And therefore, to you, it's just everywhere now. It was pretty much always there the whole time. You just didn't notice it. And so for William, he suddenly is noticing Anna Scott everywhere he goes. She's on every bus. She's on every movie, right? His his roommate suddenly has a bunch of her movies and everything is Anna, coming up Anna Scott. I love that kind of idea. And they don't go out of their way to really show that this is a frequency bias or a illusion. But I think we all kind of get the idea. Like, he cannot go anywhere without seeing her. And now that's all that he can think about. She's left him, yet he remains with her. And that kind of helps us build a stronger and stronger connection, not just, you know, with her, but with his desire for her and why someone like the perfect girl is just not going to fit the bill. I, I, I would imagine it would be like having the best meal ever and then going home to, you know, crackers and Cheez-Its. Like, you're just like, uh, this this is not okay. <laughs> I don't want this. <laughs> yeah, I think w- one of the only rough spots I had in this film was, and it's subtle and it's light, but it's just enough to be like, mm, yeah, there had to be a, a better way, which is uh, the whole press showing up at the door where he goes out, he sees the press, then he goes back inside and then she walks and he just lets her walk right lets out. Let's her. I was screaming at the t- TV. I said, don't let her go. What the hell? Just ridiculous. That's, yeah, that's just absolutely insane. No, yeah, that does not compute. That's not something that would happen. He, you know, it's just, no, Anna, don't open that door. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. You're going to communicate to her exactly what's happening. And when, I'm sorry, when have you ever answered the door in your underwear? One, I mean, I guess nobody comes to our doors anymore. But if somebody were to knock on your door and you're in your underwear, I think you're either going to crack the door and look out or you're going to put some damn pants on first before you open the door (laughs) wide, like all the way. It just is. Yeah, Yeah. it was a little ridiculous. That starts to break the the suspension of disbelief because we're like, yeah, anytime the audience is screaming, I would never do that. Uh, you have to consider another route to get what you want. And and I don't know what I would have done. I just haven't spent that much time thinking about it. But something else is my answer. <laughs> there were a few uh, like plot things. This is interesting you're bringing this up because there were a few mm-hmm. plot things that I like really did kind of like that were small, but that were noticeable for me. The first one is things like when he meets perfect girl and says she's perfect, right? We never see her again. We never see her again in the rest of the film. But basically right after that almost is when all the the naked photos Mm -hmm. scenario happens and Anna comes back over to Will's house. 
And I was sitting there feeling like, oh my gosh, perfect girl is going to come in at any point and Anna Scott is going to be there in his apartment, right? Like, cause they're together now, you know, she's asking him if he's in love and he says, and he says something dismissive and walks away, leaving me feeling like maybe he is, or maybe he's in another relationship right now, but we're never told that he's not. Yeah. And we're never told that he wasn't ever with anyone else. Like, it's just, it's just left alone. And I found that kind of like refreshing because I was on the the edge of my seat a little bit expecting something to happen and nothing did. And that's fine. But it was just less, less uh, uh, predictable. Yeah. I would, I would say. And I liked that. Yeah. You know, because normally a movie will tell you, oh, you know, he's still with so-and-so because she shows up when she's not supposed to. And it puts them in an awkward position or something like that. Yeah. Or maybe she comes over late at night. Those kinds of things. And then the other moment was when that moment happens, when all the press is at the door. And then she gets really angry and says, I'll tell you what happened. Your stupid roommate told everyone where I was. We don't know that that's the truth mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. We have no idea. Like... She's assuming that. And so I'm on Will's side thinking like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. What? We don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That Spike did that. Yeah. He says, that's unfair. You know, like we don't know that. Then we're told later on, we get the closure later on that I may have told some, (laughs) some blokes down at the the pub, (laughs) but that's interesting in the moment to not have that information. Yeah. Right. As the viewer, I don't have the information. He's not with perfect girl. I don't have the information Spike told anyone that Anna was there. I'm just going off the information that maybe Anna has from Anna's point of view. I don't know that he's with perfect girl or not. I don't know if Spike told anybody, but I'm just assuming it. And that's, that's kind of a refreshing, refreshing thing. It is. Yeah. To throw it out, to allow a situation to happen and withhold the information and make us wonder, make us question and kind of leave us on edge a little bit like, well, yeah. And then of course you get the relief after the fact. And so I love, yeah, they, they, they tie it. They always tie it up, but they don't necessarily let you know before the other characters know before Williams specifically knows. And he is always the last to know anything in this movie. Always. It's so good. Seriously. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how they do it, but there's a lot, but it was good. I, I mean, like I said, I, I enjoyed the film. I think there are some spots that I would, I would do different. I, it would be interesting to, if it was, if it was flipped and she like double chased him, mm. right. Instead of him going after her. Yeah. It is very much a cliche of the man chasing the woman in a car chase. At least they didn't go to the airport, you know, yeah. oh, like chasing God. him to the I airport. Would've... You know, that would have, that would have been even worse. Yeah. That might've like killed the film. I might've literally edited my own version at that point. <laughs> 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 what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm making a, a new ending to Nine. <laughs> but you're right. Like it is, it's it is cliche. And I literally this past week had a friend of mine who she proposed to her fiance, like uh, a guy. Cool. And she posted it to Facebook and like got you know a lot of love and appreciation, which I can imagine you know that's countercultural. But yeah, very cool. And so it would be interesting yeah. to see a movie kind of play with you know some of those themes because. Right now, you know, in 2021, trying to find new ways to reimagine romantic comedies or even just romance films, you do have to start playing with the norms to some degree and figure out like, hey, what makes this satisfying? What brings catharsis and 
full emotional resolution to to the story we're telling what are you going to recommend this week so i'm going to stick on the hugh grant train Uh, i was going to stay on the julia roberts train this movie i watch every year once a year and it's just like a every single time i'm like i really don't want to watch that but it's like kind of a yearly thing that i do with my family and i end up loving it uh love actually is a 2003 film with hugh grant and a Liam Neeson, a bunch of other amazing actors and actresses. And it's just freaking awesome. I just love it so hard. Everything about it. Same writer. Same writer? Mm-hmm. Wow, cool. Well, <laughs> he did it right that time. <laughs> Took him four more years, but he did it right. And probably the only... Oh, never mind. I was about to give a spoiler. So yeah, sorry. No, what? Shut up, Wes. Well, no, I was going to no, say what? the ending of Love Actually is like one of airport you know scenes uh, yep actually works <laughs> actually works and you have yeah. to go watch the film to find out why yeah. it works <laughs> i'm not going <laughs> to tell you why but that's just one of the endings there's a bunch of endings and that ending ties in with the beginning bookends really flawlessly the whole meaning behind the film is love is actually everywhere right and so seeing it you know it's it opens in an airport and it closes in an airport not give um, doesn't hmm. give anything away. Yeah. It's just saying, maybe watch people in airports if we're ever in an airport ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's it's a great great film. That's what I'm recommending. I'm gonna recommend. This is one of my favorite movies to recommend to people because people haven't usually watched it, and it's absolutely fantastic. And if you like this kind of melancholy tone and maybe just a tad more melancholy, tad more blue. It's called Beginners. It stars Ewan McGregor. And it's just this beautiful film. It actually, I actually, watching that movie inspired me to write, you know, a short film a while back about, you know, one of my relationships uh, It's called Where We Ended. And I literally just sat and with that, the tone of this movie, I sat and wrote this whole other thing. And it's, it's gorgeous. It's a, it's a really nice film. It's beautiful. You'll see the trailer in the show notes. So stay tuned next week. We're going to have a special guest on as we cover our very first Spike Lee film. We're going to squeeze it in before the end of Black History Month. I realized that we did Soul to to start it off. And I guess we'll now we'll do Do the Right Thing to close it out. So I'm really excited about that. So stay tuned for it. And I don't know why I'm enunciating so hard. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to us that actually does reviews. Curse you, Spotify. And leave us a note if there's something you want us to talk about or cover. If there's a movie that you really love and you're like, this is the best movie that y'all have not touched on yet, uh, let us know. Maybe we'll do it. High probability as long as it's, you know, not, you know, your Uncle Bill's movie he shot on his camcorder no those those are obviously part of evidence (laughs) (laughs) so we'll leave you we'll leave you with a quote quote of the day (laughs) uh this one is from marilyn monroe this is interesting this is really interesting i've never fooled anyone i've let people fool themselves they didn't bother to find out who and what i was instead they would invent a character for me i wouldn't argue with them they were obviously loving somebody I wasn't. I was just imagining, you know, from Anna Scott's perspective, what the world must be like and who may relate. Cause she mentions Rita um, Hayworth and 
how you know men would go to sleep with this idea of a, a, a movie role and you know so i was like who else kind of embodies that and marilyn monroe has got to be the single most famous sex kitten so to speak who clearly dealt with depression like she killed herself at the end of her life and she was still very young she still had a lot of life uh, left to live that can i'm sure weigh on somebody whenever you feel like no one's seeing you they're seeing what they want to see and that perspective that she has a ton of amazing quotes and some of them are really hilarious and some of her are very profound like this one and she's like you know what i let people fool themselves and i i just wouldn't correct them like you're you're gonna see whoever it is you want to see and i don't maybe have a lot of control over that i don't have a say in that I'm going to be who I am regardless. And so, yeah, I just that whole world and concept of, you know, celebrity and fame and how, you know, difficult it must be to find love and, and honesty whenever you're surrounded by fraud, misperceptions, you know, it's got to be got to be really damaging. Wow. Great points. I got nothing to add to that. That's I think it's really hard for us to identify. I guess you could call it normal people with like famous people. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the end, you know, she's right. They're just, it's not real. Like yeah. they're just people. We look at someone like The Rock. If The Rock were standing in front of me, I'd be like, oh my God, you're The Rock. And he'd be like, I'm, I'm Dwayne. Yeah, yeah, we see who we want, who we think that they are. I mean, obviously, if I see a picture of somebody, I'm just going to think of something that they would be like, but until I know them, yeah. and how could I know The Rock, right? It just there is this perception of this person so that's a normal thing and so that's that's very meta for Marilyn to be able to like notice that and say be okay with that you know a lot of people who have depression that are famous don't really have that foresight and they it's just such a problem that people don't see them for who they are I mean the, the easy thing the way I guess we have it easy is that not enough people don't know us right mm. it's that's, like yeah that's no, a really interesting way to phrase that yeah right i mean like i know a handful of people and it doesn't bother me that most of the handful of people don't really know who i am because it's just a handful of people it's not even it's just most of a handful of people you know but millions to not know me that might feel different to not, not only not know me, but to assign me a different definition. That would be really interesting. Wow. Wow. Beautiful quote, man. Thanks, man. It's awesome. Well, this has been fun. Dude, yeah, I really uh, love this. Again, yeah. <laughs> we tore apart Notting Hill. <laughs> uh, tore it down and up and sideways. And uh, I think it came out, I think it came out on top for me. I mean, I would, I would call it a, a solid six and a half. Nice. or a seven nice I, I think after your explanation i would call it a good seven I'll take it feels it. good to me i could watch it again especially with the 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 new kind of like view of that we were talking about earlier i would love yeah. to watch it again very cool so thank you for sticking with us this whole time again please review us share us with your friends and leave a comment down below if you're watching us on on youtube 